Good morning, church. Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are still in chapter 1, and I feel like perhaps I owe an apology to the church this morning as we're going through these Advent themes. I thought it was appropriate to add in a Christmas song, but I know that some of that triggers you. So, warning, next week there may or may not be another Advent song in the worship. Well, we are in Luke chapter 1, and today we find ourselves in verse 26. Today we will go all the way through verse 38. As I read these words, remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we always do, I will... Open us with prayer to begin our time. Father, we come to what for many of us is a very familiar text. We hear these words at least once a year and they are beautiful to us because they tell us of your advent, your coming to earth. God himself being wrapped in human flesh. And the story is that you came and you took our sin for us. And you bore it before the Father in heaven. And, and Jesus, you, you are the ultimate sin bearer for all of your people. And now you have risen victorious so that we might have eternal life. And this is wonderful to us. Very wonderful. But Father, we ask you this morning now that you would help us to understand these words in an even deeper way. Lord, not so that we can say that we know more about your words, so that we can have a, a sense of pride in our understanding, but Lord, so that we might be fed and we might be more like this Jesus who came to save us from our sins. I ask that you open our hearts and our minds this morning and be with me. And these words that I say, I pray that they would minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. 
One of the basic principles that God wove into the fabric of creation as an aid for telling stories, and particularly to tell His story, highlighting His glory, increasing His magnanimity, is the element of contrast. Contrasts are everywhere. There are contrasting colors. There are contrasting patterns in nature. You might think of clear blue skies and amber sunsets or smooth plains and rugged mountain peaks. There are contrasting structures in music. You might, if you're a musician, think of using triplets in a 4-4 time signature. Or contrasting mathematical equations or analyses. Um, Statistics is an example of this. You might think of contrasting flavor combinations in cooking. Think of pan-fried pork chops and mashed potatoes smothered in butter. And now everybody's ready for the fellowship meal. And perhaps most familiar of all, contrasting themes in literature. You might think of the love-hatred narrative in Romeo and Juliet. The distinctiveness between the character Aslan and the White Witch of Narnia. Or the opening paragraph in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. The familiar words you'll remember. It was the best of times. And it was the worst of times. In the first two chapters of Luke, we are also presented with a number of contrasts. There are a number of pairings or couplings. And they're meant to be looked against each other and contrasted. You'll notice that there are two angelic Announcements. We're seeing the second of those two today. There are going to be two births. There are two circumcisions. And also two temple stories. This, of course, is on purpose. Both John and Jesus, remember that's our introduction and our outline, both John and Jesus are going to be great individuals. They're going to be mightily used of God. But one will prepare the way, and the other one is the way. One will preach repentance and the other can actually give repentance. One was, as R.C. Sproul put it, the last Old Testament prophet. He's referring to John the Baptist there. And the other would be the fulfillment of everything all of the Old Testament prophets spoke of. After all, as we know from the Gospel of John, John the Baptist must decrease while Christ must increase. Well, verse 26 in our text this morning informs us that Gabriel has again left the divine throne room of heaven during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and he went to Nazareth in Galilee. This was about 45 miles from Jerusalem, and if you want to think of that in terms of distance from where we are, imagine going from Clinton somewhere in the area of Dollywood. That's about how far out this was, and with no means of combustion engine transportation, it did take some time. Nazareth was considered kind of a backwoods, insignificant town in those days. The disciple Nathaniel would later chide, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It would have been shocking to hear an announcement like the birth of God's Messiah from a town like Nazareth. You can imagine someone from Los Angeles hearing that 
the Messiah was going to come from maybe the roots of Appalachia. Really? So he'll be an uneducated, inbred, toothless racist? What's his crown going to be? A tin hat? Will he sell moonshine? Get real, man. The Messiah won't come from East Tennessee. I mean, that's what people might have thought. It was that ludicrous to think that the Messiah would come to Galilee of all places and then Nazareth? Yet in this little country town, the greatest announcement in the history of the world was about to be made. And this is perhaps the most shocking thing of all, if you consider. This announcement was not made to a man. It was made to a woman. In verse 27, we learn several things about her. She is a virgin. The Greek word parthenos literally means a maiden. And it's intended to mean a chaste woman. A woman who's not been with a man. This should call to mind the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 which says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. We also learn from verse 27 that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now the betrothal process in Judaism had two parts. The first was a legally binding agreement made between the father of the bride and the bridegroom over the arrangement and an exchange of a dowry or a bride price. So they would have this conversation, they would agree upon the terms, there would be a bride price exchanged, and then the marriage would officially have in a legal sense, begun. At this point, the woman would have been considered the wife of the bridegroom already at this point. They haven't moved in together yet. The second part was the marriage ceremony. This would have taken place about a year after the betrothal had begun. And then after the wedding ceremony, Joseph, in this case, would have taken Mary into his home to consummate their union together. Now, this could have happened to Mary as early as age 12, but Luke does not tell us her age, so we can't speculate. I want to pause the exegesis for just a minute, take a quick time out, and I want to give a, a, just a brief warning. This idea of betrothal would be a keen place to start one of those silly purity spirals that I mentioned several weeks back. This is the way the earthly parents of Jesus did it, so it must be God's will for the rest of us. Well, I'll say full stop. The scripture describes, but nowhere prescribes, this method of relationships. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, which is the most exhaustive treatment of relationships in the New Testament, and it includes the idea of a betrothal period, the Jewish idea of betrothal, Paul did not require this approach. He just pastors from the understanding that the arranged marriage was the common practice at the time. Now, don't hear me saying, therefore, that Christian parents and youth have a carte blanche in regards to budding relationships. We've got a number of teenagers, people aging or getting older. They're getting close to that time of relationships. I'm not saying then that since the Bible doesn't prescribe betrothal, we get to do whatever we want. The current dating method among teens today is like tripping on a kind of sexual acid. I think we can all agree on that. In short, it's disastrous. We don't want it for our children. 
But there are no grounds for binding the consciences of others to a specific method like this when we don't have an explicit command in the Scripture that we must practice this kind of relationship method. The world today is so messed up. What we need to do is get back to arranged marriages. The kids don't get a say, neither does the wife. After all, it's all in the King James Version of the Bible. Well, some of you may know people like that, but that's not the way that we practice exegesis or application of our text. Now, I want to give you three things to think of as you get your kids ready for relationships. We're already here, so let's just stop for a second and talk about three application points for getting your kids ready for those relationships one day. First of all, talk to your kids about what a godly mate looks like and do that when they're young. Do it when they're very young. Go ahead and talk to them about those qualities, those characteristics, even in your spouse. These are the things I love about mommy. These are the things I love about daddy. Be sowing those seeds ahead of time in your young children. Don't wait until they're teens or they're getting a license before you start having those conversations that you think might be a little too personal. Then the second thing is that the parents, especially dad, should be involved in the relationship. Son or daughter, whether you have both or either, it doesn't matter. Parent involvement is what the world has spent the last century trying to remove from the matchmaking equation. Now there's going to be different levels of parental oversight from family to family, different families are going to think that maybe the parents need this much influence and then other families might think they need more or less. But you can avoid pitfalls of maybe falling into ditches on this side of the road or this side of the road by thinking of relationship care as a parent like you would a water faucet, okay? Think in terms of the water faucet. If you run a water faucet wide open... Sometimes you'll have a mess on your hands, okay? You just let it flow as fast as it can. It can cause problems. But if you tighten it too much, there's no water. Parents, think about it in terms of regulating it like a water faucet. You want to make sure that there's enough to get things moving, but not too much that you cause a mess. And you don't tighten it down too much so that you ruin a relationship. Maturity is the right balance for your specific kids. And that's going to be different from family to family. So let's be careful not to judge one another as we see relationships being handled in different ways. As long as there's not too much or too little, there's going to be a broad range of what's acceptable for relationships. I would also say, thirdly, don't draw the relationship out. When it's time, and by that you can think that both people are mature enough, to be in this relationship and then to get married. And he has a job and can support the family. And the parents and the couple approve of the relationship. Then the courtship shouldn't take that long. Think in terms of maybe six to nine months. Probably a decent time frame. You can take it faster. But almost no one here who's been in a relationship. And it took longer than that would say, Oh, it was a really great idea. We were engaged for a year and a half and it was so fun. Please do. No, don't. Just please don't. Save yourself the heartache. All right, let's get back to our text. Think about how different what we've seen just in the first two verses 
of the text, 26 and 27 this morning, is from what we saw from last week. Think in terms of contrast. John's announcement was delivered to a man, John the Baptist. His birth announcement was delivered to a man. That man was also a priest. That priest was serving in the temple, in the holy place of the temple, during the hour of worship, in the capital city of all of the Jewish people. What an antithesis that the announcement of God's Messiah, our Savior, He who is God incarnate, the second member of the Holy Trinity, came to a woman in a small obscure village, separated from the motherland by the unclean territory of Samaria. Think of it in terms of a righteous grandeur, considering John the Baptist, and then just an unadorned simplicity, the birth announcement of Jesus. And that shouldn't bother us. That shouldn't make anybody go, oh, I don't like that. Jesus should have a bigger announcement than that. There should be more grandeur. There should be more of a royal welcome for our Savior. I want to caution you, church. We've been fed the oppressor-oppressed Marxist moon pie for so many years that when we hear somebody speaking the lowly language, especially in terms of Jesus, it's like nails on a chalkboard to us. Remember, this was God's story first. This theme of austerity and humility is going to typify the ministry of the Lord Jesus all through this gospel, and it does in the other three gospels. Christ is certainly our king. He is our chief and our leader, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But he came as the fulfillment of the servant of Isaiah 53, and Luke is sowing the seeds of that just even in these first two verses of this section as we encounter the birth announcement of Jesus. Going on to verse 28 and 29. And coming in, he, that is Gabriel, said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. Now the phrase favored one should jump right off the page at you. The message this angel carries is for a girl who is already blessed beyond comparison. Already blessed. Think about that for a minute. Out of billions of women across the world, and all throughout time, the vast majority of which would carry children in their wombs, Mary was chosen by God to carry God in pregnancy. She would come to be known in church history as Theotokos, which means mother of God. And it doesn't mean that she's greater than Jesus or that he somehow received his deity from Mary. Partially he got some of his glory from his mother. It was a title given to her by the early church, which describes the privilege of being the one chosen to bear the Son of God. It's a beautiful picture. Most of you are aware of how the Roman Catholic Church has taken this concept, this Theotokos, way too far. I have extended family in the Catholic Church, and as Tammy and I were getting to know one another, I would often have conversations with her family members about different concepts and ideas that we learned uh, from their Catholic upbringing and their background. I remember 
one conversation in particular where somebody mentioned the unbiblical status of Mary, calling her the mediatrix. The mediatrix. It means that she is another mediator between God and men. Specifically, she is a mediator between us and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I asked how that works according to what we actually read in the Bible, the response that I got was on a layman's level, but it went something like this. Well, you have to understand, Jesus is a very busy individual. And he also does get impatient over our failings too. So why not get on his mom's good side and she will have the important conversation with him and get things worked out in our favor. Now I know that may sound a little silly, but I think that does encapsulate a lot of the Catholic Church's idea of the role that Mary plays in their understanding of Christian theology. She is, if I may, in their mind, a kind of sub-deity at this point. And that is damnable heresy. At the same time, church, we have to admit what Gabriel admits this morning. She was highly favored. She was blessed. Consider the role that Mary's favor from God played in the greater story arc of redemptive history. I was talking to my kids last night about this at the table. J.C. Ryle says that by one woman, he's referring to Eve, sin and death were brought into the world at the beginning. By the childbearing of one woman, life and immortality were brought to light when Christ was born. Since the fall of mankind, brought about chiefly by the action of the first woman, God still promised, even in her sin, He still promised her, a deliverer will come from your line. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God said to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's Genesis 3.15. You know it as the proto-evangelion. It's the gospel before the gospel, essentially. The Messiah would come from woman to save woman and all of her offspring. So with every birth... God's children were always hoping. You can go back and read Genesis and you get this sense from the early part of the narrative that every time there was a birth, they were expectant. Maybe this is the one. Eve says with her firstborn Cain, I've gotten a man by the help of the Lord. Maybe this is the one. Maybe God's already giving me the deliverer. Of course, that didn't work out. And thanks to Cain, Abel didn't work out either. And what about Seth? He was another special child, but not the one. And Noah had some good things going for him, but still not the one. And Abraham, and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, on down to David, and even Solomon, son of peace. He's the one. Not the one. But here, finally, not from the high place of the temple in Jerusalem... But the lowly place of a town out in the sticks of Israel, God sent to a no-name young lady the announcement that the seed that Israel had always been waiting for, the salvation of Israel himself, 
was on his way and it was going to happen in her womb. God wanted to borrow her womb. Interestingly enough, Jesus begins his life in a borrowed womb and he ends his life with a borrowed tomb. Makes his way to heaven. In verse 29, the highly favored girl, as you can see in our text, was starting to get a little worked up. The Bible says she was perplexed. She was wondering. She had the confusion, if you will. And Gabriel repeats the familiar phrase, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There is so much packed in this idea of the favor that God gave Mary. And I want to take just a minute and explain some of this because it obliterates the Catholic concept of all of Mary's merit, if you will. The word favor here is the Greek word charis, which means unmerited grace. Think about this for a minute. Again, contrasting. Zechariah was a righteous man. But nothing is said of Mary's righteousness. Zechariah's prayers had been made. He was making prayers in the temple of God. And then the angel came and said, I'm here to answer those prayers or give you God's answer to those prayers. But Luke tells us, None of Mary's prayers. Contrary to what Rome would have us believe, Mary has, without a doubt, at some point in her life, sinned against God and was deserving of His judgment. And yet she is graced with the greatest mothering task of all time. And no other grounds are given other than God's own good pleasure. Think about this in the context of Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we, that includes Mary, was dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Mary needed that grace too. As Spurgeon said, we all stand before God as if we were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if He was us. Mary carried Jesus in her womb. And Jesus carried Mary's sins and all His people's sins to the cross. Consequently, now all of Christ's people carry the Holy Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And all of it is according to God's grace. All of it is according to His unmerited favor. Notice next what Gabriel reports about the coming Christ. In verse 31, his name will be Jesus, which means salvation of God, or Jehovah is our salvation. In verse 32, he will be great. And here, just in that short phrase, you have another major contrast with John the Baptist. John would be called great before the Lord. You can look back at chapter 1, verse 15 to see... How Gabriel said he'll be great before the Lord. But Jesus would simply be called Megas or great. When this is used in the absolute form in the Septuagint of the Old Testament, it's almost universally used to describe the Godhead. So John would be great before God and Jesus would be great because he is God. And this interpretation is further confirmed by the next title 
he's given, which is Son of the Most High, which is another way of saying he is the Son of God. It also describes the familial and relational closeness that Jesus would have to the Father. Jesus is the prophesied and final fulfillment of the heir to David's throne. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom. I want you to think about those two verses for just a second. Verses 32 and 33. And listen to this prophecy from 1 Samuel 7. This is lengthy, but it was made to David as a means of encouraging him about the future of his kingdom. The prophet said to him that God would raise up one of your, that is King David's seed, after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall never be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." The throne of David, a king ruling over Jacob, the people of God, an everlasting kingdom. Gabriel says that Jesus is in fact that promised son that David was waiting for. The prophet Daniel said something actually very similar. In chapter 7 he said, Then the reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Now before we get to Mary's question in verse 34, let me say something briefly. This word from Gabriel here in Luke chapter 1, read in the context of 1 Samuel 7 and Daniel chapter 7, is maybe one of the strongest arguments for post-millennial eschatology that I've seen in the Scriptures. And now that I have everyone's attention again, <laughs> saw some heads pop up real fast. <laughs> the elders are still studying the three main views. We are getting ready to conclude our book on amillennialism, working on getting through that one. And secondly, I'll say that we are not trying to pigeonhole ourselves into any one of the views, including postmillennialism. But I want you to consider something as we pass over this text in Luke chapter 1. Consider that Gabriel, announcing the birth of the king promised to David, the same king who appeared before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, the one who would throw down every earthly, and that means physical kingdom, one by one, he would throw them down, said that the Christian kingdom, the same one that Gabriel's announcing here in chapter 1, verse 33, would take root, it would increase like leaven in a lump, and last forever with no end with all other kingdoms, physical as well as spiritual, in subjection to his. 
Now, if you're reading in the context of these three different passages, you can't all of a sudden, in those contexts, come up with some kind of immaterial, spiritual-only kingdom. The Jesus-in-my-head-in-my-heart kingdom, but not anywhere else. You can't read these three different passages throughout the Scripture and suddenly say, well, we're going to make a quick change. I just want to take out some of this material and put in some different material. The kingdom of God is primarily spiritual in nature, in that it exists in the hearts and minds of the true church of Jesus Christ. And it spreads spiritually through the preaching of the gospel and slowly, like that leaven working its way all the way through the lump of dough. And everything that I just said, every post-millennialist would say, yes, I agree with that 100%. But that kingdom will manifest itself in that all the dominions, the physical kingdoms on this earth, will serve and obey King Jesus. Jesus doesn't just reign in the hearts and heads of his people where Hillary Clinton and most of Big Evil would like him to stay. He must reign until all of his enemies, and all means all, are made a footstool for his feet. 1 Corinthians 15.25 the defeat of one earthly kingdom is followed by the defeat of another, ending in them all bowing down to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus reigns in heaven until that happens. He doesn't come to earth and then make it happen. He reigns until his enemies are put under his feet. The kingdoms of this world, Revelation 11 says in verse 15, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, for those of you who don't take this perspective... And I'm still not saying that I'm convinced at this point either. I'll say too, this is not a slam dunk argument. Case closed. We're passing out new covenant member forms and you're all required to adhere to post-millennial eschatology. I want you to know that what, whatever the elders conclude as we come to the end of this study, and we might all end up in different places, whatever we conclude, we're going to continue being liberally minded towards secondary matters, and this is a secondary matter. However, we do have to teach on the full counsel of God's Word. Gabriel told Mary that her son was David's promised son, who would begin the process of world conquest. We find out this is through the gospel, not through the warring that Peter attempted. Jesus warned them not to do but through the spread of the gospel, that the world would eventually bow the knee to his rule. Whatever view you have, you must agree on that. Everyone must agree on that. Let's look now at verse 34. Because Mary musters up that question that may have been bubbling for some time. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the term virgin, just so you know, isn't actually used in the Greek text here. She literally says, how can this be because a man I do not know? This is very similar to Zechariah's question. Strikingly similar, actually. How is what you're saying, Gabriel, how is that possible? I don't understand. I can't make sense of it. But again, we come to another contrast in the text. Because Gabriel follows up, not with a rebuke, but an answer. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
he begins immediately to answer her question. Just like she had said, uh, I'm not sure how those puzzle pieces fit. Oh, well, let me show you. He just answers the question. No discipline, no rebuke, just an answer. Now, some of you might be wondering, how does Mary get off the hook so easy? And they both asked a question of the angel. It's not fair that Zachariah gets disciplined and Mary doesn't. If you ask the average Christian seminarian today, they'll likely tell you that Gabriel was trying not to silence diverse voices. Sadly true. I think the answer to the question, however, is far more simplistic. Zachariah's question had to do with belief, whereas Mary's question had to do with biology. Zechariah may have asked for clarification, but it came with a rhetorical doubt. Uh, I'm too old. It doesn't work that way. Mary was saying something like, Okay, I'm following you, but you said something a minute ago about conceiving. You see, I've had the talk with my folks, and I haven't been with the boys yet, so how does that work? I think she's asking a question of biology. And Gabriel doesn't chastise. He explains. And, and the key phrase in verse 35 is the, the phrase overshadowing her. It has nothing to do with the bodily encounter that Mary would have with the Father. Thank you, perverse and moronic Christian heresies. Yes, they're out there. But it's identical language as used back in Exodus... Picture this, when the Shekinah glory of God clouded or overshadowed the temple and the tabernacle. For this miracle of miracles to take place, the presence of the Lord would not overshadow a tabernacle, but would tabernacle in Mary's womb. Hence, Gabriel can say that the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And a further sign is given to encourage Mary. Elizabeth is also pregnant and already six months along. And then in verse 37, the angel makes one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible. You've probably quoted this many times, and it's only used one time. It's right here in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. For nothing shall be impossible with God. This is a statement of the extent of Trinitarian power. Think about that for a minute. At the end of history, when all is said and done, the tome of humankind and its recorded events closes. It comes to the great denouement, that grand finale. At that moment, it shall be said, nothing was impossible for God. Now go back up to verse 36 for just a second. Elizabeth has also conceived in her old age. That is special. It's extremely significant. But it's not the first time that God's done something like that. In Genesis 18, Yahweh promised a son to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And like Zechariah, Sarah has a little chuckle back in the tent. She overhears. But Yahweh replies with this interesting phrase. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The phrasing in the Septuagint is almost identical to what's here in Luke. 
It's just phrased as a question rather than a statement. An unbelieving woman, an unanswered question. By contrast, here in a small town in northern Israel, during the reign of a wicked tyrant king and under the subjection of Roman imperialism, deep in the womb of a woman who had never been with a man, God would provide the seed to fertilize one of her eggs and bring into flesh the creator of all things. Just as in Genesis 1, Mary's womb was empty. It was void. There's nothing there. And in a miracle beyond that of the creation of everything from Genesis 1, without a human father, God created a body for God. One commentator put it this way. The laws of nature are not changed which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads with which he holds in his hand and which he shortens or lengthens at his own good will. Church, what seems impossible to you right now? Does it seem impossible that one day you'll be married or maybe have your own children? Does it seem impossible that you could ever move to Anderson County, be part of this fellowship in a closer way? Does it seem impossible that you find that occupational and financial stability? That you be reconciled to your lost father or mother or son or daughter? Does it seem impossible that you'll ever get consistently good sleep at night? Or be healed of your years-long acute illness? Does it seem impossible that you could have a happy marriage or enjoy regular intercourse with your spouse? Does it seem impossible that you could ever overcome that sin pattern that you've been beset with for decades now? Or that you would, in even a small way, be acceptable to God? That you'd be able to admit and even believe in your heart that He forgave you of the adultery? Or the theft against your own family when you were young? Or the abortion in your teens? Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus Christ, who created all things, Colossians 1, created the physical embodiment of Himself in the womb of a woman who had never been with a man. And He can do it in a way that He will remain completely free from the sin of the woman who carries Him in her womb. This is the exact same miracle if you'll allow me, that brought new life into your dead heart and mine. Jesus says to those disciples who were confounded at him sending away the rich man and said, if it's like this, then who can be saved? Matthew chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So what excuse do you have lost person hearing my voice today? What excuse do you have for refusing Christ? If all things are possible with Him, then nothing so heinous that you've done, no blackening sin still you feel deeply on your heart, is so damning that Christ cannot create new life in you and forgive you of your sins. There's nothing. It, you, it doesn't matter how many people you've murdered. 
It doesn't matter how many people you've slept with, you're not married to. It doesn't matter how many drugs you've done. It doesn't matter who you run around with or what you say or what you have said or how you've blown up your family and you've separated close friends. None of it matters. Because with God, all things are possible. And if you repent today and put your faith in that God in whom all things are possible, you will find him to be the perfect savior, the exact one that you need. And you will find that he truly does save to the uttermost. Now, let's look at our last verse this morning, verse 38. When this question, the question that, that Mary asked, this thing that I'm dealing with, how is it possible? How can I ever get out of this? God, how are you going to resolve this? When the question is settled in your mind, all things are possible with God, you will respond the way that Mary does. Mary said, Behold, I'm the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Here's Luke's final contrast. Zechariah could not believe the miracle. He couldn't believe it. And yet Mary, having received a greater miracle and tasked with a far more difficult assignment, gladly receives it. You say, what do you mean, Chris? Think about it this way. Elizabeth and Zechariah are way beyond the childbearing years. And she has a husband whom she has been with on a regular basis. They're not in the betrothal phase anymore. They've long been married and she has long been in that man's house. Everybody's expected for years and years that she get pregnant and have a child. When she appears at the market again after five months of hiding, what's the first thing on people's minds? They're jumping up and down for joy. Are you kidding me? She, how is she pregnant? It's a miracle. It's just like Sarah and Abraham. God's doing something amazing again. He's speaking to us again. The child that she's going to bear must be a great child. It's going to be wonderful. But Mary receives another birth announcement, and her assignment is entirely different. What are people going to say about Mary when that baby bump becomes visible? She's a whore. She prostituted herself. She and Joseph just couldn't wait till that wedding day. And then what does Joseph think? He knows he hasn't known her. If he were to continue with the marriage, it would be a tacit admission that he did sire an illegitimate child. So he would make his own name look bad. Which is why in Matthew's gospel, he resolves to divorce her quietly. So he can be removed from the situation and then it doesn't embarrass Mary any more than it has to. All this and nothing less Mary is submitting to in this moment. It might take our, time, our, our minds a few minutes to wrap ourselves around, oh yeah, she would have a hard time. It would have taken her no time. Wait a sec. Okay, that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be hard. Behold. I'm Yahweh's slave. Let's go. This is the result of true faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I know you can do all things. I'm your slave. Do with me what you will. 
In conclusion, let me ask you a question. Has your faith in Christ led to a joyful acknowledgement of your current assignment from Jesus? Has it led to a joyful acknowledgement of your current assignment from Jesus? Are you glad and diligent to live within the station with which He has placed you? What do I mean? Perhaps the Lord has given you a season with few or no children. Isn't this your assignment from God right now? Has He not required this from you as He did Zechariah and Elizabeth? Are you tempted to avoid fellowship with others because you don't think you have anything to offer or it just hurts too much to see others with more when God's season for you now is less? Hebrews 10 says, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me give another example. Men, take a look at your calendar over the last few months. Would your time management testify that you were a father committed to his children's growth appropriate to their ages? Consider the number of guy activities you've attended over the last few months or how much time you spend exclusively with the men during fellowship times or family get-togethers. Is your family seeing a man who's giving himself to home and family discipleship appropriate again to the season that you're in? Consider the ages of your children, the health of your marriage, all of those things considered. Would your family say, that you're more interested in them or in guy time. Speaking of parents of young families, do you, if you're a parent of lots of littles, even a few littles, do you look longingly at your brothers and sisters who are two or three seasons ahead of you in the growth of their families? Are you so eager for the freedom that you see in them that you're neglecting the training of your children that will get you and your home and your children that will actually get you to that place. You're neglecting that. Because I want to live it now. I see them. They get to go talk. They get to hang out. And I don't, but I'm going to gravitate over here, and I'm going to hope that the kids are okay. Consider our fellowship times. Where are your children? Especially the ones that need extra training. Is it your wife's responsibility? Is it your husband's responsibility? Are all the eyes in the church enough safety that the children are just going to be fine? They can kind of roam. Remember that there is such a thing as presumptuous sin. Be careful. All of these are merely begging the question, are you embracing or are you renouncing the station that God has assigned to you right now? Let's look at some tips for parents of young ones. We say often at Christ the King, that we're a no-parenting-free zone church. The elders wanted this morning to take a, just a moment to talk about what that means. Fill that out a little bit. So to spell it out as simply as I can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to no-parenting-free zones in terms of five different things. If you're a note-taker, I'll try and repeat these. Five different things. Teaching, training, repetition, attention, and review. Teaching, training, repetition, attention, and review. Think first about teaching. Remember, parents, that our children come into the world knowing pretty much nothing. You know 
to take care of a bathroom break before the service, parents. You know to do that. But if you haven't taught your kids that, if you haven't actually sat down and communicated that to them, we don't take bathroom breaks during the worship service. They're always going to ask. So teach them. Use words. It has to be said. Parenting free, no parenting-free zone, step number one, teach them. Number two, train them. In addition to telling your kids, you can't go to the bathroom during church, make them do it beforehand. Kids learn a lot by doing things instead of just hearing about them. And we could give numerous examples beyond the bathroom break thing. That might be one that is relevant to your family. But if it's not, do your children get more than one water cup each week? Do they throw it away when they're done? Or do they leave it in the floor? Do they play in the sanctuary unsupervised after the service? Do they interrupt adults having a conversation? Children shouldn't do that. should be respectful. Put a hand on an adult. Wait patiently. Train them. Not just teaching, but training. Walk them through it. And then, repetition. Training has to be repeated. And that is not just one or two times. It's a lot. You should train to such an extent for some of these things that may take a year or more that you could forget to give them a heads up on what you've been talking about. Let's go to the bathroom break example for, for this illustration. You forgot to give them a heads up about the bathroom break before the service, but you've trained them. You know that you've trained them because even if you forgot, they won't ask. They just know. My mom and dad will say no. I'm not going to ask. I know what you're thinking. A year is a really long time to have to remember to do that every single week. Will you embrace that year of repetition, teaching, training your child to be obedient so that they can sit in here and worship with the rest of us, so that they will hear God's command in the Word of God, they'll be disciplined. Fathers, will you bring them up in the instruction and admonition of the Lord? This is what it practically looks like. The fourth thing, attention. Young children need their parents' oversight and attention constantly. Teaching, training, and repetition gets them to the place where they need less of it. But young ones need your eyes, parents. Or a clearly designated other. This could be a spouse. It can be an older child for short times, etc. But parents that have youngs and olds don't lean so heavy on your olds that they become the third parent. That's not their job. They're helpers. That's what God's given them to you for. Quivers in your, or arrows in your quiver. But be cautious you don't overuse them. Young, untrained children should be supervised at all times by their parents and not just sent into the church building alone or with young friends. That means dads, you will have to have that child's hand during your conversation with the other men, or you might just not get to stand and talk to the men as long as you'd like. You're in a different season of life right now, and God's saying, will you embrace that? Will you invest in it right now? If you do, it will pay dividends in the future. Lastly, review. Regularly go over each child's behavior and growth with your spouse. Are they stepping out of line? Are their attitudes getting sour? What can you do to correct this? Do you shout at your children for things that you have never taught or trained them to do? If so, you are sinning against your child. Well, they ought to know better. 
That's not a good reason for an outburst of wrath. As I said, true child training takes time. Have they had enough repetition to ensure that they can follow through? And do you pay attention to them to make sure that they're going to follow through? Now, back to our text for just a moment. You've seen the contrast between John and Jesus. God sent one boy into the world, and they had the eyes of the whole community. They expected greatness from him. The other was sent out to what Stuart Townend calls the squalor of a borrowed stable, the scandal of a virgin birth. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Again, Isaiah 53. And yet, he was God who came as a substitute for you and for I. And now he reigns as King of kings and Lord over all. Though these are two different men, both accepted the commission that they were given by God. Have you? Would you consider today, beloved, repented of tr- repenting of trying to manage God's universe, tell Him the way that you want it to be done, and resolve instead, like Mary, to be the slave of the Lord, to serve in whatever situation He places you? I'll conclude with these words from Bishop Ryle. All disputations with God after His will is known, arise from faithlessness. There is no more noble proof of faith than to subdue all the powers of your own understanding and will, and without dispute, to go blindfold wherever the Lord leads. Father, this is the heart that we desire to have before you. We desire to be men and women of faith. We desire to follow your Son where He leads. We know that a life can start out with greatness, but as John shows, it can end up being very difficult. Our lives could lead to martyrdom. And Jesus tells us that our lives will be full of trials and tribulations, but to take heart because His was as well, and yet He overcame the world. Help your people this morning to overcome, to accept gladly the station that you've set them in, and to invest all of their energies and talents right where you've put them. And Lord, bring, as Jeremy prayed earlier this morning in the pastoral prayer, a bountiful harvest for what investments we're making right now. For your kingdom and your glory and the increase of your name all across this earth, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.